Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Well, it is a privilege to be joined uh, once again in the Garage Studio uh, with the Reverend Hayden Butler. Hayden, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So this 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 one's this one's a little different. Um, I'm I'm hardly ever on LinkedIn, and it's because it's just uh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and and every time I check in, it's like I have 27 notifications, and none of them have to do with me or anybody I know or care about, really. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how they became my notifications, but you know, I don't have the notification alert on, so I discover it. So it's kind of fun. It's like, Oh, what's going to be there, you know, because I don't know ahead of time. So uh, I open it and it's just an incredible sort of like, it's just a business spam thing, right? Like that's basically what LinkedIn seems to be. Um, but anyway, so yesterday I was checking my 27 LinkedIn notifications, none of which had anything to do with me. And yet, I was told one of my notifications, this is how sort of overwrought <laughs> LinkedIn has gotten, is it was just telling me what's trending now in the world of LinkedIn. That was a notification to me that I should be aware <laughs> of what they were doing. Um, no individual, just this is what's trending now. Please be aware of this. And, and what was trending yesterday um, was this. Self-awareness may be the key to excelling at work. And then here are some tips to improve it. When I clicked on that, it led to a slightly larger version from something called LinkedIn News. So then I was like, well, wait a minute. It's trending because it's your news item. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you, so you have made it trend. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I was just like, uh, anyway, and then it says, okay, with the massive increase in remote workers, self-awareness and good communication at work have never been more vital. Uh, Fast Company notes that seeing yourself clearly and understanding how others perceive you and your message are critical in making better decisions, being a stronger leader, and making your ideas heard. Some tips. Seek feedback from others regularly. Practice mindfulness to become more aware of your surroundings. And never stop striving for personal development. It led to an article from a place called Fast Company. I'm not sure what that is. And then that led to a an article that had been written up a couple years ago in the Harvard Business Review, right, about the, about basically the benefits of self-awareness. Now, all of these benefits uh, are being described are for productivity, for success at work, and things like that, right? Because right. we're in that world, uh, in, in the LinkedIn world. Um, I, I read it though. I read each of the pieces. Um, like they, they had me interested enough to keep maybe morbidly curious about how self-awareness was going to like, um, you know, elevate my bottom line. Um, and, and then, you know, with self-awareness, anytime it's mentioned, you start wondering how self-aware you are. Right. And right. so it has this in, it has this narcissistic like pull. Right. So I was like, I feel I'm pretty self-aware. And then it was like one of the things in the Harvard Business Review article is um, 
most people think that they are very self-aware, <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out only 10 to 15 yeah. percent of those that we have studied in our five to seven thousand person thing are actually qualifying for being self-aware. And I thought, oh, you know, and oh man, <laughs> so, oh, hey, there's, a, there's a benchmark. And man, so as it went, it got more and more detailed. And they talked uh, in the Harvard Business Review article. She talks about internal self-awareness and external self-awareness. Internal self-awareness has to do with your, uh, your clarity on your own values, on your own abilities, on your own sort of uh, motivations and your own goals and things like that. Um, so you have internal self-awareness. If you're really clear sort of what you stand for, what you're interested in, what you're motivated by and for, how you, know, how you get there and what your skills do to sort of accomplish that, what your, 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 your kind of strengths and limitations are. Internal. External is, do you know how people see you, right? Like, are you aware of how others see yourself or whatever? And then they're like, the best leaders have high, you know, both or whatever. Um, and so like, there's this whole thing. And I went down this wormhole of self-awareness. <laughs> but in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, this is what, this is what we have, mm -hmm. right? We have things um, with this new year. We've been talking a little bit about this new year. And we have these things about how do we become better people? Uh, Basso and I talk about the optimization culture. How do we optimize mm, yeah. life? How do we constantly improve, 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 improve? And as I was reading it, I was, you know, I was like, oh, I want to be better at you know <laughs> this and that, right? Like it was naturally like something that drew me in. Um, you and I see this. We see this uh, in in ordinary society. We see it in LinkedIn world. We see all this kind of stuff. But we also know that it has sort of uh, entered into the life and the world of of the church mm -hmm. and Christian formation. So we want to talk a little bit about um, this idea of not just spiritual formation, um, but this idea of sort of self-awareness, um, the way that Christians maybe go about how to develop uh, their self-understanding or um, their kind of, I don't know if it's productivity. Um, how, what, what are some ways that we might get in besides this sort of LinkedIn <laughs> world? Uh, maybe that's the world. Is it, is it true that for <clears throat> Christians, maybe we also think in terms that are largely how to be more productive yeah. Christians, how to be... Uh, what's your sense of the Christian sort of move to self-improve? Yeah. So it, it seems, you know, self-improvement's not a—the uh, movement is not a new thing. I remember back in high school having to read Stephen Covey's, like, The Seven Habits of the Highly Effective Person and, you know, this idea of kind of optimizing your thing. I, I, I think most of the optimization culture—I mean, you and, and, and especially Laura. Laura just really uh, has a really great— um, a grasp of this and really calls it to task whenever she sees it and really brilliantly. So, um, but I think, yeah, so I, I think, I think to draw on that, that has become an, a working metaphor, um, for things in the church. You know, I remember, you know, in, in high school as well, watching with, with a sense of kind of weirdness, um, a lot of corporate speak be drawn into the church. I remember being given a book at my graduation that said, that was entitled Jesus, comma, CEO. Nope. And I'm like, there it is. That's, <laughs> that's probably not, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was a little bit, I felt a little weird about it. I read the book and it had some fun, good things to say that I, I don't think needed the conceit of Jesus as a CEO to really say, and maybe should have just been about those things. But the idea that Jesus is the sort of optimal sort of, he would be the optimal corporate officer is troubling to me. 
because it, it feel it just it, I can't see it as any other thing than co-opting Christ to feed to to sort of substantiate what is by definition an insubstantial corporate narrative. And so, you know, I think when we come to optimization, we have to ask, okay, what do I think what do I think people are? What do I think I am? Hmm. You know, because really a question of optimization presupposes an idea of what the ultimate form of that thing is, right? What we might call its telos or its end, its purpose, its fulfillment, its flourishing um, in, in Christian language, its beatitude, right? Um, and the Christian tradition is not against the idea that you grow, you know, you grow and learn and mature. The Bible constantly calls us to maturity, to a sense of uh, to a sense of progress in the sense that we are growing into the fullness of who we are in Christ, and that that presupposes kind of like process, process and progress. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a, it's not a sort of anti-progress kind of thing or the idea or but I think for modern people, you know, um, a great writer that I follow, uh, Stephen Freeman, he's an Orthodox guy. Um, he pointed out that um, it may be that the word progress is uniquely dangerous for modern Americans Mm. to use. And with that optimization and all these other sort of um, industrial terms that that talk about efficiency, and and, and we just, we can't hear the word progress without thinking of all these other words that get freighted in with it. So I think that's the place to begin is realize um, what we think we mean by progress is probably not what the Bible means by progress and probably, and it's probably informed more by an industrial corporate narrative than it is by a sort of biblical or, or sort of properly Christian narrative. So an industrial corporate narrative would then mean that our identity is going to be largely rooted in things like productivity, things like um, promotions, right? I mean, like promotion, tangible uh, results, right? right. Acknowledgements from others, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, that that also is sort of that that affirmational side of things Mm -hmm. that other people will see and uh, and be sort of like wowed by um, our abilities and our skills and how they match and, and meld with what we're trying to accomplish in the in the Harvard Business Review article. Um, she opens saying self-awareness um, seems to have become the latest management buzzword and for good reason, right? Research suggests that when we see ourselves clearly, we're more confident, we're more creative. Just think about the more, right? More confident, more creative, we make sounder decisions, we build stronger relationships, communicate more effectively, less likely to lie, cheat, and steal. <laughs> we are better workers who get more promotions and we're more effective leaders with more satisfied employees and ultimately more profitable companies, right? So as you said, it's not that uh, any of the things or some of the things in there are not good, right? Yeah. Strong relationships, sure. you know, healthy communication. It's the goal, right? Yeah. Well, as you say, it's a telos. It's, it's what do we really think if we're talking, because some people would say, well, look, I'm not, I don't view myself as like a, a business or I don't <laughs> I don't have a corporate mentality about my identity. Um, But one of the things you discover is that as you get older, um, you continually sort of are sort of almost encouraged or impelled to review your life and your accomplishments to see how it stacks up or or to compare with others, right? As you move along through life, as you say, as you progress through life, you have uh, only a few ways that the culture offers that you can actually mark that progress. And it has to be change, right? Right. (laughs) right? It can't be static. It can't be like, 
I have maintained solid relationships. It's like I have gotten better at maintaining stronger relationships. You know, it's like it has to always increase, right? right? There is this kind of constant need to to improve your skill set, improve, improve, improve. Mm -hmm. As you say, the Christian life is about growth. It's about maturity. Um, But the talos is different. The goal for the Christian life, what would we say is the goal for the Christian life? To to discover who we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says that our identities are hidden in him, yep. which would imply that we can only come to know who we are by getting closer to him. Yeah. And it also implies that he's in control of how or when or whether he reveals more about who we are to ourselves, right? That yep. there, is a, there is a contingency about our self-awareness right. that Christ holds who we are and we don't just have um, to find an effective strategy to self-discovery or to know who we are, but we actually have to receive it from the Lord, from the Lord's own hand. Um, so maybe that's part of it too, is that the corporate narrative, uh, and certainly the, the LinkedIn narrative, is all that you can control. And then you get anxious when you start reading about what you are not maybe very good at, and then it gives you five ways to get better at that, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe part of that problem of, of the optimization or the progress narrative is that it centers it on me yeah. and, and on my ability and on my inability, but then once I discover the, the true tips and, and tricks and you know focal points or whatever, the seven habits, yeah. um, then I can... Ab- be able again (laughs) it can be a new ability so is that is that uh, at the heart of the issue is that it continues to put the power to control uh or become whatever i am back into my hands i think i think control is a good word for it and this is where it kind of it sits at a more foundational level than even the optimization thing so let's go to the awareness question right right um this whole thing hinges right better relationships better success you know all the good things right um, may, maybe, and uh, but it all hinges on whether I can actually become as self-aware as the Harvard Business Journal says I ought to be, um, and that remains a very open question in the Christian tradition. Um, and if and if and if and if the scriptures are narrating the truth about the human person, um, then it, then it remains uh, to be seen whether or not a person can actually accomplish this this project, right, or whether or not it's a kind of striving after something that's impossible. So think about awareness, right? Right now, like it's, it's a, a real big thing is, is all these kinds of inventories and all these kinds of m- means by which we, we try to know who we are, know who we really are. Um, and so, you know, really what we're, we're laying claim to, what we're presupposing there is, is if I just go looking for it, I'm going to find it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that can evade or exceed the determination of my curiosity and my inquiry. That's a very modern thing, right? That's a right. very new right. thing. Right, right. Pri- you know, for most of human history, we always, we looked at things like with a sense of, you know, there's a sense of mystery, even to the things we thought we understood, right? It's, it's only kind of recently in human history that we really believe that we can exhaust the mystery of the world, including ourselves. Um, but like you started to allude to, the scripture is n- by no means confident in that project, right? The, the, the heart of a person, their, their true core, is often spoken about in terms of great profundity, right? It's mm. a great profound depth. Um, who can know it? The scripture asks. It is not confident that anyone really does except mm. for God, mm. um, who alone can see it. 
um, like you said, you know, you're alluding to first John chapter three, right? When it says, you know, beloved, you know, we, now we are the children of God and what we shall be has not yet appeared, but when he appears, we know that we shall be like him, right? Um, the thing that has been manifested in Christ makes visible the, the unknown God, right? Makes tangible manifest the unknown God. Um, and in a similar way, right, what we shall be as the children of God, um, what we really are, the thing we have been made factually to be by the adoption and grace of God, is something that remains hidden in a significant way at this point. St. Paul says this, right, in his letter to the Corinthians, when he says, right, now I know in part, mm-hmm. and now and now I see in part, right, but then then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known, right, as God knows me to be, so I shall know myself. I shall not see myself kind of in a passing shadow of a mirror. I shall actually know myself. You know, I, I talk to my students about this a lot. You know, we, we, we start off our literature curriculum with a reading of Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, right? And Lewis is playing with the idea, the ancient kind of Greek idea of the face, right? And in, and in Greek, um, you know, I've always been kind of uh, excited about the idea that in Greek, that the idea of person and face are the same word, mm-hmm. right? And so you have this idea that to mask your face is to kind of hide who you are, really, who you really are, right? And to show your face or to have a face to show says something about you. But we one of our discussion topics is always, I've never seen my own face, right? Um, like that's, that's this st- stupidly obvious part <laughs> of me that I've never seen, right? And they're like, well, what about a mirror? And I'm like, that's a reflection of your face, right? But even the greatest <laughs> mirror is not your face. Yeah. Like, what about a picture? And I'm like, even the greatest <laughs> iPhone camera is not your face. But we still crave that, right? You know, like my, my daughter has started to look in the mirror a lot more. Yeah. You know, and I look at my students and they're constantly taking selfies of themselves, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking somewhere in there is a, is a desire to know themselves, right? Yeah. Know what, they're really, what they really are. They're trying to see their own face, right? Right, but again, the scripture is it, it, it puts this thing that really that it, it sort of equates with who we really are, and it's something I actually can't see, based on my anatomy and my limitations. I cannot see my face. Mm. It can only be seen and kind of be reported to me, mm-hmm. right? And all my attempts to look at it for myself are imperfect, but deceptively imperfect, so that I think I might actually know who I am. And really as you said, and reported um, with degrees of obscurity right right? like a glass darkly right the best mirror is still an obscurity of of that right or or the best friend who knows you so well telling you your strengths and weaknesses is still a glass darkly right right? it still is and what's so interesting about what you're quoting from saint paul in in first corinthians 13 there is he does not say now we know in part and then tomorrow we're going to know a little bit more yeah, and exactly. a little bit more a little <laughs> <laughs> until we finally, through this progression, yeah. know everything. Yeah. He just says, now we know in part, then, yeah. right? It's like this, there's this like disruption. There's like a, yeah. a break between those knowings that, that we may only ever have the knowing in part as a part of our experience yep. here. And that destroys the progress narrative oh, yeah. of coming to know more and more and more and more until we finally hit the ceiling right. and we have known all, right? Yeah. It really is a revelation, right? It is an appearing. At his appearing, we will realize and be as he is, right? And that that is so interesting because, yeah, then the, the idea of progress um, cannot be incremental improvement over time Um uh, unhindered, right? Yeah. Or just some, some na- that's the natural way this thing unfolds. It seems to be that Paul is almost resigned to knowing very little 
yep. about even who he is. You think of those places where he's like, I cannot even judge myself or my own ministry. Right. Or, he says, judge nothing until the Lord appears. Yeah, right? I have yeah. to do what I feel called to do as best as I can do it, but yeah. I, I can't go over here nickel and diming, you know, whether right. or not this was effective or, you know, half right. the time the churches, you know, expel him as much as they receive him. He would probably leave ministry if oh, yeah. he was constantly doing self-analysis as to his strengths and weaknesses. The, the whole story of the early church is a lot of story of, you know, you know, of disaster, yeah. you know, and, and, and persecution. And, you know, if you're going by the numbers, the the sort of the metrics, right. it's not great, right. you know, and, and, and yet, and yet, you know, the gates of hell never prevail against it, and yeah. the Spirit never leaves it without shepherds, right. and all of these things, right? Right. Yeah, but I just love that that it is not this linear progression, no. this uh, this sort of no. scale upwards, this ladder into the heavens, you know. And and what's so interesting, so the desire, I love what you're saying about the face, and the desire to know ourselves yeah. is there. Um, you know, uh, Nathi Satan, you know, know thyself, the Delphic Oracle. Sure. Um, but, you know, uh, that also is basically a, a Pauline <laughs> thought of, it is. Uh, you are not God, know that you're not God, you're not a God, know that you are mortal, know that yeah. you are nothing, right? Know that you are small. What are you, oh man? Right, yeah, yeah. who are you? And 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 yet this, this desire then maybe to, is it that we cannot sit, or that we don't know how to sit with knowing so little? Um, because I, I, I know in my own experience that, People who have a little more self-awareness um, can be more empathetic. They can be more careful. They can be more helpful. They can, you know, that that narcissism is like the absence of like certain yeah. kind of self-awareness. So I know that there is a a value, and I and of course a spiritual value to knowing thyself, yep. um, even if it is in part. And that being part of your knowing, right? Yeah. Okay, to the extent that I know, I know it's only partial and so much is hidden. Um, but what I can see is that, man, when I when I come into these, you know, conversations, I just end up making everyone feel like right. <laughs> they need to run for the hills. Right. Or whenever I say this, it just doesn't go well. Or when I do this, people seem to recoil. Or, you know, that, that there are yeah. there are things about our interactions with each other that I know are valuable and important to sort of gain some sense of not being trapped in just the impulsive experiential moment. That's right. And having some ability to have self-reflection. Yeah. So even if we acknowledge up front, which I think is so important, the limitations of that, yep. um, as you say with our students or with any of us, the desire, our children, the desire to see yourself, to understand yourself, um, is a given desire. Right. It is part of what it means to be human. Um, so would you say then that maybe the, like I think of just the, the there's always, whatever generation it has, the, the personality tests, right? Yeah. Has, there, is it just that there's always this like simplified, like straightforward, like here, all you got to do is answer these questions. Yeah. Is it just that the path is, is given to be so easy that it becomes almost self-defeating in some sense. Like, I mean, you know, we're not really into Myers-Briggs anymore. And they and they, they usually say with personality tests, and this is true of the Enneagram too, from what I can tell, um, is depending on how often you take the assessment, you end up with different numbers, yeah. right? And that that is really problematic because then it implies it's a form of pseudoscience that right. is sort of... Um, you know, self-referential. I, I feel this to be true about myself. So look, it's true. Yeah. Um, and and so so is it that 
you know, we we keep having, even in the church, uh, right now the church is having an Enneagram moment. Yeah, <laughs> it sure is. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just because it's the newest sort of version of this personality test, yeah. right? And it's, and it's so nice. It gives us a number. Um, and, and then what I've noticed is, you know, people are really interested in that, in that number. And I've joked around with my students because I talked a lot about the difference between faith and magic. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I talk about how it's, it's very little different in many of its uh, uses than the astrological calendar. Oh, yeah. And then the signs, right? I'm a Libra or I'm a Virgo or I'm a Gemini. Um, and, you know, they go push back because they're like, well, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> because it's in their churches, right? right. And it's like they're, you know, their churches will offer like Enneagram courses to like discover. And it can be like a, you discover your spiritual gifts, right? It can yeah. kind of be presented as like, well, this is just a part of knowing who you are so you can be a good, you know, more aware person who's a right. Christian. Um, so with something like that, right, what, what, are the, what are the issues with something like an Enneagram as a... Is it a fast track? I mean, what, what do you see as the, the dangers or the drawbacks of these kinds of things having entered into church culture, right? Yeah. I understand the world always wanted to optimize yeah. and always wanting to simplify yeah. and always wanting to know and control. I get that. But when it enters into the church and it becomes a little more like, oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, 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 it is having a moment right now. I've, I've, I've read a number of the, the, the sort of the Christian fusion books that 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 are that were it is good. a fusion right because it's, it's not originally it's, a christian it doesn't originate in christianity <laughs> um it, and it's a fusion effort it's a kind of there's a lot it borders on like helpful borrowing to just outright syncretism right where it's just it's trying to fuse two alien two things that are alien to each other so uh, you know reflecting on my own sort of exposure and experience to this um, I, I see a lot of the initial impulse very similar to how i remember hearing about the myers brig right right so you know, to, to me, these these inventories looked at in like in total, right, as a category, um, have the fundamental flaw of like they can really only tell you what you tell them, right? right. They are you they're they're sort of like they're not that different from looking in the mirror or taking a selfie. Um, they're they're they rely on your inputs, and you can lie to them. You can, and really, that means it it, it, it doesn't correct for the fact that you can lie to yourself, right? <laughs> of, you know, and so what it what it usefully can tell you is yeah, yeah. how you either want to be known or how you want to present yourself. Um, or it can tell you how you think you should or how you actually, or maybe how you are actually putting out your persona to the world. Um, but the danger is that it, it, it makes you think that, okay, it can get deeper than that. It can get past my own tendency to self-deceive. It can get past my tendency to lie to others about who I really am. It can get past my kind of branding myself, you know, in a particular way at that point in life. It, you know, so it conforms, I think, to what we're, but the, the different inventories conform, I think, to where we're, we're, as the church, we're sort of at right now. So, you know, uh, you know I've seen different versions of this. One, one is the Myers-Briggs. That was for a time, I think, that appealed to a very, a person who liked clinical sounding language. Yeah. Myers-Briggs read like, I it was a clinical assessment, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a clinical assessment, like, that you would get like from a, like a diagnosis diagnosis by a doctor, yeah. you know, and it, it's like that's got to be real, right? It's a scientific thing. The enneagram is an interesting shift because it it basically is the same thing, except it, like, it, and it's not exactly the same, but it, it, it's the the language of it, the whole mode of it, yeah, is interesting because it's moved far away from that science, that sort of pseudo scientific clinical sounding language, and it's moved more into a religious mythological language. 
Um, and this is where I think it, it stands to be more powerful because it captures a deeper part of the, of the person. Mm-hmm. It ca- captures a deeper part of us. Um, it captures our imagination. It captures our heart. Um, and it gives us a sense of a unifying narrative for things, a unifying vision of the universe, mm-hmm. of all of these intricacies of human- humanity sort of made sensible along a really cool-looking chart. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. it, and it gives me a place yeah. in that too, right? Yeah. Now, here's where I think the detriments are. I'll start with that. The detriments of it are that it, it's still liable to, it's very liable to self-deception. It doesn't correct for that. So you can lie to the Enneagram and the Enneagram will lie back to you because you <laughs> lied to it. Um, and so it, it can only, it can tell you, it has limited value in how it can actually disclose who you really are. Okay. Um, that's not uh, that's not unique to it. The other thing about it, though, that I, I think gets into a, maybe a benefit is it's really concerned with interpersonal dynamics in a way the Myers-Briggs wasn't. Mm-hmm. The Myers-Briggs was much more um, static and isolated. It's like, you are this, and right. you relate to these other types in this way, but it's still like you're in your silo over here. The Enneagram has a lot more um, a lot more of a, a narrated sense of dynamics between the types, right? And and how they how they, how they in, impact each other. And I think that orients people to seeing who I am, you know, impacts people. Who I am and what I do and what I say um, has a tangible effect on other people. I am not an isolated atom. It puts us back into a more realistic sense of existing in systems with other people um, and helping us to understand the dynamics of those relationships. So I like that about it. But I also think that, you know, it, it, it has a mythological sounding language that's not that different from the astrological chart in that it gives us the, the temptation to a kind of knowledge um, that because it's wrapped in mytho- mythological language and, and spiritual sounding language um, strikes us as more authentic and maybe more authoritative mm-hmm. than something like the Myers-Briggs, which seems like more of a clinical diagnostic. Mm-hmm. So with the Enneagram, you know, it, it, it purports to be a kind of religion to itself. And I've seen it become a religion to, to itself. And when it gets in relationship with Christianity, more often than not, I don't see the Enneagram getting sort of dragged in the direction of Christianity. I see Christianity getting dragged in the direction of the religion of the Enneagram. And mm-hmm. that's where I think there's a practical danger to it. The earliest mention um, um, of the Enneagram is found in the writings of the Russian occultist P.D. Uspensky, who attributes it to his teacher, the Greek-American occultist, George Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff considered the Enneagram a symbol of the cosmos. He's talking mm-hmm. about the mythological. Yeah. But made no connection with it to personality types. It was left to another occultist, Oscar Ikatso, to connect the Enneagram to personality. Ikatso claimed to have discovered the personality type meaning of the Enneagram when it was taught to him by the archangel Metraton. Oh, boy. While he was high on mescaline. Okay. <laughs> Um, in the 1970s, <laughs> okay, so one of his students, a Chilean-born psychiatrist named Claudio Naranjo, another occultist, was the first to connect the nine points of the Enneagram to nine basic personality yeah. types. Naranjo also appears to be the one to connect the mention of the Enneagram by Gurdjieff and Espensky to quote-unquote ancient sources. So then from there, there is claim. there are claims about it being, uh, you know, whether the Kabbalists, Sufi mystics, Pythagoreans, yep. the yep. Chaldeans, some would say the Desert Fathers actually started it, right? Yeah. But the actual narrative begins with this Russian occultist and then a yeah. series of disciples of, of that person. Um, 
it becomes, uh, you know, popular in the 1970s when it enters into the Catholic Church in certain Catholic communities, I should say. Yeah. Um, and so, and it's especially made uh, well known by people like Richard Rohr, yep. Franciscan friar who, who writes and speaks and, and has uh, is a big name. Um, and then what's so interesting is that was 1970s. <laughs> um, and then somehow, uh, and it's not exactly clear to me how, um, evangelicals like found it or yep. heard about it. And it hit just a handful of years ago, really. Um, that it became sort of this mainstream sort of evangelical thing. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, it. so I only say that narrative, many people say, well, it doesn't matter where it comes from as long as it's helpful or whatever. Um, but that narrative is so mythological, right? Yes. Like the, the occultist side of that and the personality type thing coming later is so interesting to right. me, right? The mystic side and then then, okay, there's also these practical things that can help, you know, individuals, you know, navigate things or whatever. Um, but as you said, the oftentimes when it's evoked, it's, it's, it's not evoked as subservient no. to um, Christian language of virtue or the gifts of the Spirit right. or the commands of Christ. It's usually evoked as an explanation of why I am. Um, so it tends to be, at least in what I, what, or the way I've heard it used, is it tends to be a, a rationale for the way that someone uh, is, reacts to certain situations, or is in groups, or something like that. Um, oh, I'm an introvert, or um, so I'm, you know, I'm this number, or oh, I just, I'm always, I'm always aggressive. I'm a challenger. I'm an eight. You know, yeah. like. Um, and one thing I heard, I think it was John Mark Comer had mentioned that, you know. The Enneagram in the 70s with some of those Catholic communities um, was useful to the extent that it was private. Yeah. And so it was known to you and your spiritual director, yeah. your pastor. And and as you say, it would start to try to correct for, for you lying to it, right? <laughs> exactly. Like you might not be able to tell someone else what your number was, yeah, but they might be able to help you there it is, isn't see it. it. Um, so as, a, as, a, as in that kind of mode, then, you at least according to John Mark Homer, um, you were never supposed to tell anyone your number. Right. Because that defeated the purpose. Yeah. You were actually, you were learning your your type to whatever that is, right? You were learning your mode in order to realize your your proclivities to sin. There it is. In order to realize the things that you, that you are impatient in these ways, like naturally, right. without even realizing it half the time. And so this was supposed to be a form of self-awareness that was private, not advertised, certainly never used as a rationale or justification for behavior, yeah. uh, certainly never uh, offered to anybody else outside of your spiritual director or your pastor. Um, but it was for your private awareness of where you would be tempted to uh, cut a corner yeah. or hurt someone or, you know, rush into something or avoid something yeah. um, that you would realize that, OK, I have some general tendencies yeah. in my what we would just say sin nature um, to be selfish in these particular ways right. or to be a little overbearing in these ways or to try to control situations in these ways. But it was a way of learning how to move forward then into virtue and out of sinfulness or whatever that default nature of your flesh happened to yeah, to make a to, better confession to yeah. yeah to to do all those things i think and i think you're really we're getting we're getting actually to the to the to the core of it here is um you know the the this and this is something i see it's kind of a newer thing like but you know in, in christian circles I've, I've watched over the last you know couple decades the 
the growth of the the kind of the spiritual discipline movement. You know, Dallas Willard did a lot of really amazing work to retrieve a tradition of of discipline and direction and formation that has been invaluable to I think American evangelicalism, who was and he did it in a way that captivated the imagination of that spiritual movement back towards something that was not new and he was not inventing, but he was retrieving mm-hmm. really. One of the things, though, that's come with that is this, and I think you, you you hit right on it in your comments, is is this tendency to want to self-direct, right? Which, again, is not different from the selfie, right? To know myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we might add that, say, to know yourself is a good thing, right? It, it, can, it can lead to you being a more charitable um, presence, a more empathetic presence in community, which is what all efforts at knowledge really are for. Think again, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Why is it important that you know that you have unique gifts that are that, that are given by you by the Spirit, so that you can function in community right. in a in a in a in a charitable way, right? Charity is the Love. end of all things. Yeah. No knowledge means anything right. without ch- to being subjected to charity, Useless. right? So, I think we might say that the error is I want to know myself by myself for myself, right? And that is where it becomes a disaster. Um, so you take like something like the Enneagram, and it's and it's not. To the end of growth and charity and the mortification of sin. It's toward the end of me possessing a kind of hidden knowledge that I can use as a shield or as a an excuse or as a or as permissiveness to sin. Um, but really without someone else leading you, um, you it, it's it's this sort of it's this sort of ambiguous knowledge that can be marshaled in all kinds of directions, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe accidentally good, but also uh, there's a lot of more. It seems to be a lot more ways it can go bad than good. Um, so I, I love that you brought up Comer's point that that it was you know it was reserved for the kind of directive relationship because I think you know as in the in the advent of this kind of retrieval of the spiritual disciplines and 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 sort of ascetical activity. We need to also see an advent again, a kind of renewal of spiritual direction as a thing. And I think we're seeing that in some corners. You know, Biola has its Institute of Spiritual Formation where it's attempting to kind of develop this. I'm coming from a tradition that's that's very big on spiritual direction. But it's really that because you can't get outside of the person, right? You can't get outside of a person needs to be led, right? They need to be led by God, but they also need to be led by the community of faith, um, and those things are what safeguards any sort of foray into self-knowledge without it turning uh, disastrous, right? So I think, you know, I always remember Calvin in the in the beginning of the Institutes of yeah. the Christian Religion, right? And he talks about this reflexive relationship of the knowledge of God gives us greater knowledge of ourselves, and then it becomes this thing, and grace sort of fuels and initiates and completes the whole process. You know, w- we want this knowledge, but we want it for ourselves, right? And we want it by ourselves. And I, and I don't want to have to rely on anybody because people are messy, right? Mm-hmm. People are untrustworthy or whatever. Really, it's not all that different from the initial temptation of humanity in the garden, right? Eve, apart from Adam, being tempted by the serpent saying, hey, like, did God really say this? Like, if you, it, you're not going to die. If you, if you eat of this apple, you will have this knowledge mm. and you will be like God, mm. Right, and you will also be like Adam, who knew know something you don't, who heard something that before you came around, mm-hmm. right? And how wonderful would that be, right? I don't see this as fundamentally different from the fabric of that question, mm. right? And so, you know, we we get into the question of the enneagram, the Myers Briggs, even spiritual gifts inventories. Yes. I've seen in the church yes. do this too, right? Yes. What's your spiritual gift? Are you a yeah. discerner, a teacher, right. a hospitality right. person, right. an administrator, etc.? But that's not, again, subjected to the question of, 
how am I going to sacrificially donate my life to the church? Right. In what way can I make a, a truly glorious offering of myself to God and his church? It's what can I know about myself so that I can present that as a persona to the world, which ends up just being another mask I use right. to hide my true face. Right. Right. Yeah. So the corporate, uh, when we started off with this idea of corporate identity, corporate telos and that kind of thing, it, it strikes me that the loss of spiritual direction or the loss of pastoral care yeah. um, is the loss of also the personal connection to a pastor, yeah. which is both, you know, um, you know, a time of anti-authority, right? Like sure. I don't want post-institutional, yeah, things. post-institutional, yeah. where we can't we can't have people in our lives who actually direct us, right? right. Like who actually have that kind of pastoral authority in our lives, um, but also the corporatization of the church, right, has made it so that we are atoms in so much of yep. the experience of the church, left to our own without a personal sort of uh, you know yeah. connection to our pastor, a node a knowingness or a, a being known by yeah. um, our pastor um, or our minister or our spiritual leader in that, in that community of faith. And then, of course, if left to yourself, then it just becomes uh, optimization on your own terms right. with whatever resources, tools you can, because you don't have that relationship. And maybe because it was there, but you didn't want it because you didn't want to receive anybody in authority in your life in that way. Yeah. Um, but maybe because it wasn't really there because the church already had adopted several decades ago a corporate structure right. and pastors had become CEOs who increasingly were not involved in the marrying and the burying and the yeah. and the actual lives of people, um, but were more uh, middle managers or managers, managers. executive managers, planners, um, you know, what's the, what's the calendar of events, um, organizers, motivators in this sense, but increasingly abstracted from the role of personal spiritual direction as a pastor. So all of these factors seem to sort of have sort of collided in, yeah. I would imagine, and I, maybe this is not true, but I would imagine that the people who are more drawn to things like the Enneagram or who invested more deeply in it and again, maybe this is wrong, but I would imagine they they might have experiences of the church in which they were not very well known for very long in the same yeah. place by the community of faith and by their pastor, right. um, or or did not trust um, pastors in their lives, or did not have that kind of authority, that right. did not admit that kind of spiritual authority in their lives, um, and so then, in the absence of those places or those those things, those relationships this as you had said before it becomes like a relationship with yourself where you are directing yourself right. through whether you're lying to yourself about yourself right. um but it's a it becomes a form of, of of leading and projecting and leading and projecting your own self uh, as an atom as, a, as yeah, an everybody's directed right. by something you know um it, and in direction good good spiritual direction really it, it does it does present a kind of um course correction to the tendencies of, of the self left to its own devices, right? It can go wrong, and, and you know, and sometimes directive relationships do go wrong. Um, but I wouldn't say it goes wrong any more than self-direction goes wrong, and so the, 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 the thing persists, right? And, you know, we always get back to the, you know, the, there's, there's the, the, again, the, the reality of, of life as a Christian in this world is that, you know, God has, God mediates grace, right? God mediates grace through the relationships we have with his people and his pastors in the church. There's no getting around it. 
There's not, no such thing as a self-directed Christian life. And even the monastics, right? We, we sometimes think of like the Desert Fathers, you know, it's like, oh, well, they, they were self-directed. They were not, you know? They were, they, they endured a, a particular kind of discipline of kind of, you know, hermit life out there, but that was still largely speaking in communities. They may have gone out alone from those communities, but often they returned, and it was only the most, most mature among them that were, were granted permission to go actually live a truly solitary life, mm. like in for long, long, long amounts of time, because otherwise it was too dangerous for yeah. anybody else. And even those, probably by the Lord's grace, but certainly to yeah. some of their annoyance, <laughs> were surrounded right. by by those seeking direction from them. Oh yeah, those and were so the targets. They couldn't, yeah, <laughs> they no, the none of, nobody could get out of the relationship <laughs> right. on either side, right. right? Even if they were in that extreme and mature category. Um, yeah, that, that relationality, that, um, that the role of others, as you said, as, uh, the mediation of grace, um, in the body of Christ, you know, we, we are all called to, to be a priesthood of believers. We are all called to ministerial like activities in our homes, in our workplace, in, you know, in our, in our day-to-day existence. Um, but that is not to be removed, um, right. right from, from being, uh, submitted to that ourselves. And it is very difficult, right? It is difficult in a time in which, I mean, the article that I started with, it, it talked about in an age of remote workers, right? In an age in which people are more separated, but also more involved in more people's lives yeah. through a variety of channels, social media and otherwise. It, it was like it almost presented it like because modern life is so crowded um, and we interact with people in such fleeting, but so many people in such fleeting ways, we crave a quicker way to categorize oh, yeah. them. That's right. And to present ourselves for the sake of the handful of interactions we may have with them before we interact with That's a thousand right. other people this week. And I thought that was such an interesting and insightful comment about the desire to huh. categorize, because that, that's one thing well, we it's, haven't It's efficient, quite, right? Yeah, it's efficient. And, and one thing we didn't quite touch on was it gives us a way of categorizing others. Yeah. And that, to me, is maybe the most deadly thing in the, in the world. Well, yeah. But, you know, to, to be able to say, oh, well, you're a four, so of Oof. course you're going to say that. I have a limited... <laughs> well, it, it, what, it's a, what it really says, and this is how I've often seen it used with the Enneagram, yeah. is, okay, you're a, you're a four, right? You're a four. I'm a six, whatever. Um, <laughs> that means that I have a limited range of expectation, a limited range of obligation to you. Right our relationship is only capable of this sort of narrower range of things now, right? Which is a much more manageable range it's, of it's things, right? Corporate, it makes corporate sense. It makes right? corporate if sense. We are in a it, business it environment. Very efficient. Goal, yeah, all of the ambiguous efficient. relationships of the church. Clear communication right? in, in, to in get humanity. to the bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, you know, and, but I think, you know, we, we get that, get out there as a kind of idolatry ultimately, right? So, you know, there's a wisdom in the Ten Commandments, right? The, you know, the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself any graven images, right? Of other things above the earth or on the earth or under the earth, right? You shall not bow down to them or worship them. They, you know, we mm. typically mean, think this, you know, we, this primarily applies to God, right? You should not, you know, create a kind of 
static image of something that is a sort of living reality, right? There's a kind of unwisdom in that mm. because it can, while it, it may, if you keep your right head about you and you understand what's going on with it, it's a very useful tool to teach you an aspect of something. Um, if you are tempted to forget that it does not encompass the thing, doesn't comprehend the fullness of the thing, then you have you have made a God for yourself that is not the Lord God. I think that there's something to that in other people as well. And I, and I think this is the, maybe the danger of these personality types and all these things is it, it's, a de- it's, a, it's a danger of creating a static idol of other persons who are dynamic, growing beings who are being led in a sort of journey of transformation by the Spirit of God in ways that are unpredictable and wonderful, mm-hmm. right? But one of the things that this does in our attempt to make more efficient our understanding of that ambiguous um, and paradoxical process of transformation that has ups, downs, backs, and forwards is to say, I'll settle for a more limited thing so that I can feel more comfortable and efficient um, rather than ex- embrace the messiness of that larger thing that has an order and a beauty to it that I don't have full access to. Right. And that, and that then is also what makes it so difficult, it seems, for people to stay in a church. Right. Because it's like, this is annoying. Like this is frustrating. Oh, yeah. People are, it, it's not efficient, right? It, it goes against all the other yeah. ways we're used to having to interact with people. I mean, even in parenting, right? It's, it is really a lot of the, the advice is about, you know, goals and efficiency and this kind of, you know, yeah. how do you get to productive, you know, kind of markers of their growth and their successes as you know people in the world right. and stuff like that. Like almost everything we do has been optimized to an efficient purpose for some other goal. But the church is not like that, right? No. The church, as you said, it, it's like God can see yeah. the efficiencies. God can see how things are meant yeah. to work. Yeah. Um, but but we we don't have the patience to stay in relationships <laughs> right. that are not categor- categorical or or that are not or that we don't know how to manage. Maybe that's right. it. Like as you said, like the the mystery of the body of Christ and the mystery of brothers and sisters in, in the community of faith is they can always be more and other than we would have expected because right. of God's grace. That that's literally what it means to to be a part of Christ's body is is that there is possibility of 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 movement that would not have anything to do with a categorical identity or a number or something like that. And that and that if we can't sit in those relationships, yeah. right? In the same way maybe that we have trouble with authority or pastoral direction or something like that. But but if the church has to be an organization like a business, if the church has to take on the efficient systems and things like that, then people will continue to move from church to church to church to oh, church yeah. to church. Um, and maybe unless or until they can be a part of a group that's maybe small enough or manageable enough that they know yeah. where everyone goes and what their role is and things like that. And and yet, in so much of life, like marriage or anything else, parenting, um, you know, your growth comes in the ways you would never plan it to oh, come, for sure. right? That you you don't know what you need, and the Lord gives you what you need, and you don't want it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Like you you would lie to yourself about what you needed um, because you would want other things than what the Lord knows right. you need, including the people that you need, and and that that strikes me as a really interesting, um, not even a side point, but um, a central point that part of of spiritual growth and maturity is a surrender to having been called 
to a people yeah. and a body, um, having been given, as Paul says in Ephesians, having been given pastors, right? Given as a gift, um, rather than having sort of not purchased, but like, you know, um, selected or mm-hmm. designed or ordered, <laughs> you know, right. a community or a pastor or a spiritual growth track or a spiritual gift set, yeah. right? Like that idea of it not being in our power, but it being something that is this incredible thing we receive and that the Lord would be able to do that with anybody, no matter what your personality type, no matter how difficult you may be or how difficult other people may be around you, right. that those things, if God has ordained those things, he's called you to those people, um, that those are the people you actually need, even if they're not the people you want. That's right. Yeah. As, as, a, as a minister, do you... I mean, we, we're in Orange County. I mean, this is this is the startup land. This is the, the gig land. This is the hustle. This well, is... It's also, you know... Uh, plastic surgery land it <laughs> yeah, is right. it's self-customization, self-customization land you know yeah how hard is it for people to enter into um a commitment to a church uh in a place in which all of life is is going in the other direction right it's very hard um and usually i've seen it require a kind of shaking of the confidence prior to that realization. Um, it doesn't seem people don't seem to accidentally fall into it, mm. but it usually takes a season where they realize I need to be known by someone. I need, I need someone to know me uh, beyond the face I present to them. Right. And oftentimes when people get burned out with the church, they're like, well, there's like the, you know, the expectation that um, there's the expectation that I come to church and it's just like, well, how are you really doing? It's like, well, I'm doing great brother, you know, like, you know, um, and, and really, you know, my marriage is falling apart, you know, like all these kinds of things are going on behind the scenes. Um, I think, and, and, uh, but then also there's the flip side of that, right. Where there's, there's a, there's a sense that there's sort of church communities that form out of that despair. Mm. And then, and so it's like, well, how are you really doing? It's like, I'm doing absolutely horrible. Grace is absolutely absent from my life. And it's like, oh yeah, let's just kind of sit in the despair together. That's also, I think, very unhelpful in a way that that can go. The, the answer is, is in this, in between, right. Which is something that has the, um, stability, a, a sort of a community that, desires to know people in a stability that doesn't need to fix them right that doesn't anxiously seeking about isn't anxiously seeking about trying to fix every detail of life right the idea that yeah the kingdom of god like like all the details of your life are relevant but the kingdom of god is not here to you know optimize your finances to make you the you know quote unquote best parent in the world these all these kinds of things um it's to call you into a thing that uh, it's to call you into something bigger than that, that gives meaning and order to all those other things. Even if you experience suffering, even if you experience heartache, even if you experience failure and all those other things, and will know you and love you in the midst of all those things while also calling, continuing to call you into something bigger. So it doesn't collapse into either of those two other um, sort of idols of the human person. You are not just your fake optimistic customized version and you are also not the worst possible version of your despondency like you are this dynamic thing you are a creature dying because of the fall and also the child of god who will live forever okay let's let's get to living in light of both of those things together but usually that requires you know a small community like you have to be known you have to be knowable and known um knowable not just in the sense that you're not faking but also that it's small enough because Gosh, as a pastor, I have limitations. I have bandwidth. 
you get past a certain point and I can't know everybody. Right. So if that happens, then either another pastor needs to be called up or another church needs to form. Mm. And I, and I, but I don't see that formational community existing beyond the scope of what the pastoral giftings of the church can handle, right. right? In a reasonable way. You can't really direct thousands. Neither can I. Maybe someone can, um, but I've, I think that's an incredibly rare gift if it exists. And most of the time it's like, no, we have our, we have our small um, little parish, our small little congregation, mm-hmm. and then and that, and, that, and that suffices. So I think those are some of the things, some of the practical concerns. That yeah, and I, and I like that because it also takes some of that responsibility back on leadership in the church, yeah. which is to say, which I totally agree with, that the size of the church should never be beyond what, what a person can can be pastored through right like that they it it would have to i just if if it actually was the case that there were so many people they couldn't be known and pastored or you know well then we formed a second church and that was why we formed a second church um and 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 or that the lord would call someone you know in in the needful moment to step into pastoral ministry and a pastoral calling to meet that need, but that that that's what the organic dynamic nature of the church, as far as its size, would be. Yeah, it would be based on who can be pastored well, right? And not something more than that, right? right. So, and I think that's the, I like owning that as especially uh, coming out of the evangelical tradition of having the church growth and the, all the business strategies that the pastor is CEO right. because so much of the of the the issues we're talking about I think are very much the result of uh, and downstream from a church that people just aren't known and they don't even necessarily think that that's what church is mm-hmm. essentially about right yeah it's about getting fed it's about hearing a sermon it's about you know things that you could do right downloading uh, on a podcast you know it it doesn't have that that necessity to it and and i think that it's because we have taught people that yeah for decades and and so it's and so it would be it would be pretty rich if we were then to <laughs> wheel around and be like right. why would you want to know your personality type and try to direct yourself right. you know toward places of improvement you know if if we have basically uh left that role and created an idea of the church right. in which you don't even have a pastor that knows you. It can't be a, just another, picking another brand, right? And this yeah. comes back to our topic, which is, um, you know, self-directed church shopping, right? Which is, as like, I want to pick the church that will turn me into the person that I want. I want to think that I am or want to think that I should be. And getting kind of in a church for a long time makes you realize that what what brought you there in the first place was probably not the best not not the best and highest aspiration right right even if you end up in a really good church um, but like the motive that brought you there was probably imperfect and until you are around a place long enough to realize your initial motive was imperfect um, it hasn't begun to grow you right because you're still directing yourself until you're brought to the point where you realize my my self direction is foundationally flawed and I need help. I need to be, I need to fall on my knees and I need to be led in some way. Like if we can't do that, then if we can't do that in the kind of small mundane ways that a local church requires of us, I don't know how we can have much confidence in that we'll do that with the God who we haven't seen, right? Mm. 
in the same way that John, you know, says, you know, if we don't love the person, the brother we have, we do see, how can we love the God we don't see? I don't know that it's not like, if I won't, if I won't be led by someone, I don't know that I'll be led by anyone. Mm. Right. And that does, that, that has limits to it. You don't want to, you don't want to just say like, well, I could be led by anybody then you want to be discerning. But, but at some point we do have to be led by someone. Paul says, right? Like, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Mm. That, that's, that's a, an entrenched biblical principle. We don't direct ourselves. We follow people as they follow Christ. And that's how we follow Christ. You know, we follow those that he puts in our life to mediate the grace and the leadership he provides mm. to us. Yeah. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Reverend Butler, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, David. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon. <laughs>